What is science? Is this science? Is that science? How does someone even do science? What makes someone a scientist? And how did they learn to science? In this podcast, we answer these questions and more while talking to great guests from across the sciences and having just a little bit of fun. Welcome to Is This Science? Hi, Caitlin. Hello, Allie. Are you ready for our seventh episode? I am. I am so ready. Seven Uh, is a great number. It's prime. Seven seven is a great number. It is is very prime. (laughs) Um, I love a good prime number. Yeah, I do. I do too. Uh, And in full disclosure of the uh, taping of this episode, um, I may have partaken in the team trash mug a bit early, so we might not need to do a break between, uh, between us drinking and us talking right now. Oh, no, that's, I would completely agree. That's fine. So how are you doing today, Caitlin? Good. I'm good. We had our graduate recruitment weekend. Uh, Allie and I both did, and as did all of the IU biology department. And I am just thankful it's over and that it went over without, with very few glitches. I'm happy about that. And we had very good recruits. Like I say this every year, but this year, like I met, I didn't meet as many recruits as I normally do, but the ones I met were very great. I'm really hoping that we get some good new colleagues here in the fall. Me too. Me too. So for people that haven't been to grad school or haven't done grad school interviews, um, it's kind of like, it literally is like a, like a med, almost like a med school style recruitment weekend where we have everybody come and see the campus and they get tours, they get to interview with faculty um, and they're invited. So people apply and then you're invited um, and then roughly, like I was, like I was telling the recruits, it's usually roughly half of the people get an offer and then some portion of those people accept. So, um, but yeah, this year it was hard because it was really, it was a really good group. I always tell them this every year is every, if you got an interview, that's already your first step in the right direction. So yeah, they're nerve wracking, but it's fine in the end. So Caitlin, what are you drinking today? Okay, so today I am drinking from the, from the mug of the team trash mug because I forgot last time. Uh, it is it's called Perpendicular, which is a hoppy red ale from one of the breweries in town. Uh, their name is Function, so all of their beers uh, and and homebrewed things have uh, math names. So this one's called Perpendicular. It's very. I mean, I love a good red ale. This is a hoppy red ale, so it's very good. Even better. Even better. I am not drinking local today. I'm actually drinking a sangria that's from Vermont. So I'm giving it's local, you- sort of. <laughs> it's local, local to Caitlin's hometown. Yeah. Um, and it's the sangria that no matter how many people I get to try it, it tastes like our childhood and we don't know what it is that it tastes yeah. like. Like different candies. We like debate about what candy it tastes like. And everyone's like, it tastes like this. No, it tastes like this. Yeah. I think yeah. it still tastes like the blue and red Trex yogurt that you'd have as a kid. Ooh, um, did you know Trix yogurt, you know Trix yogurt was like discontinued? I did not. I, I haven't seen this anymore. Okay, I was like, I ha- I feel like that was like the original, like before Gogurt, like Trix yogurt was like the cool yogurt to bring to school. But I'm drinking. Um, it's called Woodchuck, I think. It is called Woodchuck. I can tell you this because that is a term for a specific kind of Vermonter. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, if you want to learn more, you should listen to this bra- uh, Brave Little State, which is a podcast all about Vermont, but they did a whole episode on woodchucks and what that actually means. So I actually learned all of this from that podcast. 
we'll we'll just crack right on into it. Yeah. Um, so, Caitlin, do you have a how to not for this week? I I really don't. I I don't. This this week is hard because uh, with with our graduate recruitment weekend or visit whatever we're calling it this year. Yeah. Um, I have not, I've not really been in lab very much. So most of my how-to knots have just been involved or involved me um, looking up things on the internet um, and not being successful about that. And that's pretty much it. So, <laughs> nope. Did GRV stand for graduate recruitment visit? I thought, I think so. I thought it stood for graduate recruitment virtual. I don't know. My advisor called it GRC. So I don't know. I don't know that anybody knows what it stands for because people just throw in their own acronyms and I still knew what he was talking about, but yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, do you I, have a, a how-to not this week? Do I have, so for, in order to have Drosophila stocks, they're in vials. And so I have all of my stocks in duplicate just in case I like one dies, I'll have a backup. So I don't need to like go and order the new stock or generate it myself again. Um, and so I was flipping. So flipping is when you take the flies from their old habitat. So the old vial, and you put them in a new habit, like quote unquote habitat. It's a vial that has fresh food um, so that they can just kind of like live and cont- continue reproducing um, in a better environment. And I, we use glass vials. We're very lucky here at IU that we have a big enough center that they make all of our food and clean all the vials for us. Um, so they use reusable glass vials. And I, took two vials that were together out of my bin and immediately dropped them on the floor and they smashed and I just said no, no that whole stock and so I immediately just like took the cotton and just like jammed it into the two tubes to try to keep any flies in there that hadn't already flown away and I ended up being able to save it and that was fine but I was like I didn't even think about the fact that I was jamming cotton into like sh- shattered glass and I very easily could have just like sliced my finger open but you know what I do it for the science and I did not slice my finger open I was fine yeah I'm glad sorry my internet just died maybe I don't know well I can hear you now okay okay I can see see and hear you now sorry okay I could not see I could see you but not you were just frozen you are frozen again the problem of zoom in 2021 sometimes the internet doesn't work Hopefully it comes back because we've already been drinking for these two episodes. But until then, I'll just talk to you all. How are you all doing, listeners? Are you doing well? I'm good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm just talking to our listeners, Caitlin. I was just talking to our our listeners for a second. I was asking them how they were doing. I was doing it kind of like Dora the Explorer style where I'm like, so how are you? That's good to hear. I'm doing well too. How was your week this week? Oh, I'm sorry that happened. <laughs> well, good. Well, hopefully for one, at least one person that fit with what they were saying. <laughs> I really hope so. Like I had a really great week and it's like, I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going first, right? Yes, Allie is going first. Last week, Caitlin gave me the topic of the science behind floppy ears, which um, after some investigation, I 
and talking to Caitlin, I learned that that's the science behind domestication. So how animals were domesticated over time. And so I have some, some facts for you about the science behind floppy ears. So specifically why dogs got floppy ears over time. Yes. So gray wolves and dogs diverged from one another. So dogs diverged off of a wolf, wolf species from an, an extinct wolf species. So that wolf species is now extinct. You can't find it in the, uh, the world, uh, between 15 and 40,000 years ago. So a very, very long time ago, like older than the ancient voice. Um, and uh, so I'm so sorry, but you missed no, it. Didn't I mean, quite. He would have seen dogs though. So it's fine. Yeah. Uh, and this happened in, uh, so based on some archeological records, as well as some genetic records, they think that this split happened somewhere in Southern China or Mongolia or in Europe. Um, and it's kind of hard to tell because there isn't a lot of remains left over that they can find and do tests on to look at the genomes and how they might be similar or different to one another. So people weren't like, weren't like burying their dogs ceremonially like they were with cats. <laughs> yeah, no, not quite. Um, and so the way you use genomes to figure out um, how similar things are to one another is your genome is made up of four letters, uh, combinations of A, T, G, and C. Um, and the more similar your code is to someone else, the more likely you are to be related to one another mm-hmm. in a nutshell. Uh, very, yeah, it's a very, very oversimplified nutshell. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And that, because as you go along, mutations will happen um, and you'll diversify from one another. So they also think that dogs could have been domesticated more than once uh, throughout that history yeah. since, since 40,000 years is a long time. Sure, sure, sure. The domestication event could have happened multiple times in various different locations. So you could have had a domestication event in southern China, one in Mongolia, one in Europe. Um, They all led to kind of similar dogs. uh, But if the one in Mongolia, if that dog didn't do well and it went extinct, you still had dogs in Europe and um, southern China, which then could have spread across the world. Okay, so there could have been multiple events that made, like, for better, like, for for a... Easier to domesticate wolf species. Yes. It might have happened multiple places. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Um, and this all, all this information is coming from the Smithsonian Magazine's um, article on uh, domestication. The way that they looked at this is they took uh, mitochondrial DNA from 59 European dogs. Are these, wait, are these dogs that, these are dogs that were like historically European breeds? So these were, uh, I think they were dog remains because I then wrote 3,000 to 1,400 okay. years ago. So they were remains. The reason they're using mitochondrial DNA is mitochondrial DNA is really slow to mutate. It stays really similar over time. And so usually if you want to map things back to species, you'll use mitochondrial DNA. And that's the closest you'll probably get to a match. And so they, from comparing those genomes of those dogs with wolves and dogs from Asia, so from another possible um, place, they saw that the split probably happened about 14,000 years ago. So they were able to use some of this DNA to break down the timeline from 15 to 40,000 to break it down to about 14,000 years ago to get it even closer to today. Okay. Um, but it also, so it could have happened as long ago as 14,000 years to as close to 6,400 years ago. So we're getting a little bit closer to common day. Luna's trying to eat a box. So okay. she is very domesticated. <laughs> 
Okay, Allie, I think you need to maybe stop teaching your cats your own personal preferences and maybe you have them not do that. Oh, uh, you'd think. <laughs> she, this cat, she owns this house. She does. I just live in her house. So they think that the rise of domestication, so when fo- uh, foxes, when wolves and dogs started to separate from one another, um, happened with the rise of agriculture. Okay, so they, and they are totally different species for people that don't know about wolves and dogs. Like they are totally different species, genus. Yeah. Okay. But they started together. Gotcha. Um, but as they moved on, um, they started to be separate. It's uh, like entities from one another. Um, and so a lot of lore is that the separation from a wolf to a dog. So when the first wolf kind of like befriended a human was the result of a solitary hunter finding a wounded, a wounded wolf and then befriending one another. So the wolf needed help. It uh, accepted the help from the solitary hunter who was all by itself um, and wanted a companion. Um, they befriended one another and therefore we got dogs. And so, I mean, like kind of, but like not really. It's not just like one wolf that could have then led to the whole entire domestication leading to dogs. That feels unlikely. Mm-hmm. So what actually was, was the survival of the friendliest with hunters. And so hunters would keep around the friendliest dogs. They don't want a dog that's out to like bite their face off. Like that's not going to help them if they're dead. Right. So keep around the dogs that were the nicest to them. Um, Those dogs would be bred with one another. And then you'd get offspring that were also nicest dogs. Uh, Okay. So you're like, you're like selecting for friendly, like friendly types of dogs now my cat is in the closet trying to get into my clothes and so something this has led to is now dogs are significantly worse at working with other species so in the past wolves are pretty good at working and communicating with other species in the wild but now dogs are pretty bad at communicating with other um species if you see uh like like dogs in general are pretty bad at if you bring them out on like walks they're not gonna interact with species the way they would have uh 14,000 years ago that is fascinating. Okay. Um, and so something that uh, this article was talking about is how dogs hijack the human's brain's maternal mm. system. Um, yes. Tell me about this. So what it is, is dogs, when they look into humans' eyes, it triggers uh, our brains to release oxytocin, which is a, which is the hormone that leads to maternal bonding. Mm, okay. Um, and so um, from us, from dogs literally looking us in the eye, we release a hormone that makes us feel more maternal and like want to help them and feel more bonded to them. So they're kind of like hijacking um, our brains along the way. And they also will use, they'll like see what humans are doing and dogs are very receptive. So they'll know that like, oh, my human likes when I do this, I'll just keep doing it because I want the human to keep me around. Oh, Um and so domesticated animals have uh, floppy ears, shorter snouts than, so th- the domesticated dog, for example, has floppier ears, shorter snouts, uh, snouts, snout. <laughs> shorter, shorter snouts, uh, smaller jaws, and smaller teeth. They also have lighter coats, uh, and their coats are splotchier, and huh. this is known as domestication syndrome. So as the animals become more domesticated, those are some of the things that happen. Ears flop, uh, kind of jaws 
and noses get smaller, they won't be needing them as much, like really, really sharp teeth, teeth because they'll be fed by someone else. So they don't need those kind of teeth anymore. They're not going to be out smelling as much, so they don't need those kinds of noses anymore. Um, and there's a whole bunch of biological processes that lead to specifically floppy ears um, is what I'm, I'll, I'll be talking about. Cool. Uh, okay. So, so even, like, even like the, like the diversity of like coat colors and like size and inferred, like everything else is like entirely related to, uh, syndrome. yeah, that's so cool. Okay. So basically what it was, was they were breeding wolves to find a calm, uh, they would breed, uh, wolves together and they would want ones that are more calm, submissive, kind, they'd be working well with the humans, uh, but obviously not being at the throats of one another. And then they would get those offspring, breed them with one another, and they would try to get this out. But what they were getting as an offshoot was they were getting wolves out th- that had floppy ears. And at first they didn't understand why that they were getting these submissive, calm dogs, but these dogs also had floppy ears. Hmm, okay. So it was like the connection wasn't quite there yet between like domestication and like and submissiveness and like the floppy ear thing. Okay. Yep. So do you know why they started getting floppy ears as they were becoming domesticated? I, I mean, I don't, I just, I always, what, what would you think? Okay. So here's, here's my, my assumption as a scientist was that I, I just assumed that it made them more desirable for the humans that they were encountering. So they see, they look like less, um, intimidating, I guess, than like a wolf where it's like very sharp features, sharp ears, long noses, sharp teeth. And so I just kind of pictured them as being I mean, I think even if we think of like a submissive dog, it's not going to be a dog that's like got its ears sticking straight up. It's going to be a dog that's got its ears down. It's like on its belly, like that kind of thing. So You want those like cute corgi butts. Yeah. Um, so it was actually that these uh, dogs that were calmer um, and more submissive had a lower amount of adrenaline in their bodies. And so <laughs> adrenaline is what fuels your flight, uh, fight or flight response. And so these dogs were automatically having um, a lower amount of that um, in their body. Oh, okay. Um, and so adrenaline in your body comes from your adrenal gland. Your adrenal glands sit on top of your kidneys. Specifically, there are neural crest cells that will give rise to your adrenal gland. Um, so in humans, the neural crest cells sit on top of your kidney. Those are your adrenal gland. They give you adrenaline, fight or flight, mm, okay. direct your brain. There's a whole bunch of like stuff there. Um, but in dogs, they saw that as the dogs became more domesticated, their neural crest cells were being found in different parts of their body. Um, okay. Leading to like a weird, like migration slash loss of these neural crest cells leading to a, a decrease in the amount of adrenaline and therefore more submissive dogs. Interesting. Okay. Um, And so specifically dogs normally had neural crest cells in their ears, um, Hmm. But as they were losing their neural crest cells, they were no longer going to their ears and it was leading to a deformation in their ears, which led to a flop. Interesting. Okay. Their adrenaline cells weren't making it to their ears and their ears were flopping down. That is crazy. Um, Were the the adrenaline or the adrenal cells, were they like increasing blood flow? Like, I don't really understand how that would change them from floppy ears. It was just like the structural stability of the cells. Oh, um, sure. okay. Yeah. So like the cells were there, therefore the, the actual ear structure was more stable and could stay erect. Whereas when they weren't there, the, the structure of the organ was probably more floppy and they would flop down. Cool. Okay. Um, they also said that these neural crest cells led to pigmentation problems. So if the neural crest cells were now becoming kind of dispersed throughout the body, you would get pigmentation issues, which would lead to splotches. 
So that's where we were getting some of those pigmentation differences where instead of having a fully gray wolf, you were getting a wolf with brown, white, and black splotches throughout its body. Cool. Okay. So Um, by by domesticating dogs, we basically made them able to differentiate in all these species then, or all not species, but all these different like breeds of dogs. They're all the same species. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then my last uh, thing about the neural crest cells was if the cells are weak when they arrive to the jaw or teeth. Um, it led to small jaws and small teeth. So basically by crossbreeding the calm dogs together um, and taking out the more aggressive dogs, we were automatically taking out the amount of adrenaline that the dogs were having naturally in their body um, from these neural crest cells, which were leading to these offshoots of floppy ears, small jaws, small teeth, small snouts, um, and lighter and splotchy coats. Wow, that is so cool. It was us picking what we... It was us picking a behavioral pattern and getting sure. a phenotypic difference as a response of a visible phenotypic difference. So we were getting these floppy ears. And now um, dog breeders pick both. So they want dogs that have those floppy ears usually and like more friendly attitudes. Kind of what started as one sole hunter found one wounded dog, uh, I think, led to the fact that like it was something that they could do like wolves were going to kill all humans not all humans were going to kill all wolves not all wolves were going to kill one human and it led to kind of like a, a trust between the two that led to this domestication and now floppy ears that we love today cool that's so cool so it was like a it was like a it was like fate brought us together a little bit yeah. this wolf that happened to have these more these more submissive characteristics showed up and now we appreciate dogs for all their cuteness and their companionship and their flappable ears yeah or not some dogs still don't have the flappable ear so i'm really curious about those those ones now i want to know so much more the dogs with non-flappable ears that are more aggressive this is true good good pinchers and i mean i'm saying that they're more aggressive by nature not after training and like how they're raised so a lot of like pities and um so pit bulls and like pincher dogs like those kinds of dogs have more raised ears hmm okay yeah that is so that is so interesting yeah i knew it was like a really corgis have raised ears but i don't know sometimes i mean our friend has a corgi with one popped ear and one one flappy ear so who knows yeah he's a half flop he's he's a half flop that's literally what they're called if corgis are only one flopped ear is there a half flop oh that's cute i like that um, but that is the science behind floppy ears. Wow, thank you. That was so much more information than I was even expecting. <laughs> I also didn't expect all of the like bio, by like biochemistry and like neurology behind it, but I thought it was really- cool. Okay, so secretly I gave you this topic because I really wanted to know, but I also, I don't have a development background. And I was like, Allie would probably will be able to figure this out. So I'm also not really curious about cats because cats obviously don't have that same, that same style of domestication. Their ears are, a lot of their cat ears are still very popped up. So I'm like curious now. But they always have been popped up. Uh, yeah yeah well yeah think. trying to think of a cat that it doesn't have pop that doesn't that has floppy ears i don't think any cats have floppy. i don't think any cats is it maybe and like a fennec fox is like an extremely extremely erect ears but that's like blood flow so i'm curious if that's be- that's how well, they i don't know if they so dogs and cats aren't really closely related i don't know if the neural crest cells work the same in dogs and cats it's possible oh, that they don't 
most coat color things in cats come from excellent activation rather than right hormonal imbalances yeah yeah that's a good point i don't know i think foxes are close more closely related to dogs but i i don't know if that's just it seems like it would be the opposite because they look like closer to cats, but I think they're actually closer to dogs. Oh, I was just talking about the difference between dogs and cats. I wasn't bringing foxes into this. Oh, okay. I don't know where foxes are in evolution. Caitlin, what's your topic for this week? Um, so my topic for this week was was deep sea creatures, which I'm now calling monsters of the deep deep. Um, so there's different levels of deep in the ocean. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but yeah, there's, there's like these distinct layers in the ocean that we think about as like different zones. So, uh, there's something we call the photic zone. So that's where light comes in and where you see all your algae plankton, uh, sort of more like things you would recognize as a person, just like looking at the ocean. Uh, we We would swim in that section. Yes, you sure would. Unless you're an amazing person but more likely a sperm whale because if you're a sperm whale you can go down to a bunch of different depths but most of us are not sperm whales so most of us most of us us are not um but so below we what we call the photic zone is where where sunlight actually can get through the water so water um if you've ever been like in a pool right you know like if you if you're below the surface right at the or if you're below the water right at the surface you there's still a lot of light if you go all the way to the bottom even just of like a 20 foot pool i feel like you can tell that there's like a difference in the amount of light that's getting down there um so so the ocean is 100% the same and so there's a there's a, this whole region of the ocean that receives no direct sunlight nothing so light can only penetrate down like a certain amount of the ocean and the rest of the ocean is what i'm going to be talking about so uh, we think about about the deep the deep deep as anything below the the, the zone that sunlight can get through, um, and this is actually separated even further into multiple zones. I'm only going to talk about because this is not like an actually educational <laughs> segment. Uh, I'm going to only talk about the abyss and the ha- the the Hadal. and so that literally translates to Hades is what it means it means of Hades. Um, and it's the deepest part of the ocean that we know of. And they literally named it after Hades because they knew nothing about it. And it just looked like a desolate wasteland. Um, and so the, just to give you a little bit of context about what that actually looks like, if you can imagine what three to six kilometers looks like, that's what the abyss is. I should have looked it up. If you've run a 5k, you've run longer than a 5k. <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you've run a 5k, you have run deep into the abyss, um, but then also there's below the abyss. The abyss seems like this should be the like the deepest, most dan- like dangerous, undiscovered place. But no, the Haddle, the Hadle zone or Haddle zone, I don't know. I always pronounce things wrong, so I'll say it both ways. But uh, that zone is six to 11 kilometers below the ocean surface. So this is if you've done, uh, I, I guess, anything beyond a 6k you've run at least this far but it's quite it gets quite deep uh and there's like i said there's no sunlight there's also high pressure so the amount of water that's just sitting on top of you if if we if we've listened to my episode on tardigrades the pressure is extreme uh there's low oxygen which is the thing that most creatures need to you know live uh we certainly do need a lot of oxygen to to do all of the biological processes that we do um (laughs) There's also, again, there's no light. There's little food because there's no light. So there's no plants producing, you know, leaves or roots or anything else that some creature could eat. 
Uh, and there's also a very low temperature. So normally this ranges from like three to 10 degrees Celsius. And 10 was honestly kind of high. I thought I was like, oh gosh, everything here must be barely above freezing. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so it's low temperature, low light, low oxygen, high pressure, everything that we would not be able to handle as a species. Basically yeah. they can just do that and they live there and thrive. Um, so thriving, did you ask? Uh, okay. Again, I didn't ask thriving. I know I should have asked the tardigrades. <laughs> I didn't think. To. Well, you didn't get any on the moss that was available to you. So I'm still upset about it, but no, I didn't. Do I still have Allie's microscope? I sure do. <laughs> I forgot I even owned it. <laughs> uh, but okay. So so there's a lot of things that like go into actually living at this deep, deep, the deep, deep, like I'm calling it. Um, and that's that they're, they have like di different ways of adapting to this. So one, one thing is they have less muscle and they have less bone, um, which might seem like a disadvantage, but in the deep, it's actually a better thing because you are more resource limited, which means you need to increase the amount of your, like the things that you eat that go into actually producing energy for you. So they have less bones um, and less muscle for that reason, because it costs energy to build bone, it costs energy to build muscle. So we on the surface have like an advantage in that, you know, we have calcium in our diets and things like that. And there is calcium in seawater, but for the most part, building up stores of bones and muscles are not advantageous to a certain point. So these creatures are going to have, um, they're going to, they're going to look a little bit more alien to us because they're going to have less, less bone and less muscle. Could I start uh, drinking, could I start, start drinking seawater instead of, um, milk for my calcium? I mean, I wouldn't recommend it. I think the calcium content is probably a lot lower. I was hoping that salty milk would make my pain go away. Oh, I wish. No, unfortunately. The whole like chalky milk drinking chocolate chalky milk to make my pain go away what like a meme right now oh okay this is again my my absolute like disconnect with modern pop culture i'm like i don't know anymore you know what i learned that you're technically old if you have a side part or wear skinny jeans or use the cry laughing face emoji because millennials because those are all things that i do because i do all of those things because i think what is the one that's Gen Z are they the ones that are younger than us Gen Z is younger than us yes they've decided that like basically when we were like those are mom jeans like ew and like the middle part no now they've switched so that all the students all of them are like the middle part is in like that side part is so out like oh they're old and I was uh -oh. like oh, no. I tried so hard to train my middle part to be a side part now you're telling me I have to go back to the side yeah. part? back to the middle back part the middle part <sighs> And wear mom jeans. I mean, I only wear skinny jeans and I only send the laugh cry emoji. So I guess I am a hundred percent. This is a hundred percent accurate. <laughs> and I try to make a middle part, but then I look like the mom from As Told by Ginger. <laughs> that is true. That is very true. Anyway, sorry. I was just asking about drinking seawater. So no, that's that that is fair. No, it does have calcium in it, but not nearly to the level that like milk and things do. Also, the harm you get from drinking seawater is definitely a lot higher than the benefits. Um, <laughs> anyways, but if anyone was thinking about drinking seawater for the calcium content, yeah. um, but for fit, if you're a fish, you're swimming around in what's basically like 
I mean, it's it's a lot of things, but it's calcium soup. It, so there's a lot of calcium uh, surprise or or more calcium in the water than like we as terrestrial beings would encounter. So us on land, we have to we actually like this is a whole nother topic, but I'm I have had enough beer that I'm going to get into it, apparently. Um, but <laughs> the like creatures on land needed needed these like really calcium hard bones for like a lot of reasons one of them is that you're of you're fighting gravity so like you're literally on land in water you're not really fighting gravity it's a lot more like a zero g experience uh where you can float and you have to worry less about like the actual structure of of you as a creature worry less about impact yeah yeah and that's even the reason why like whales and dolphins and stuff have issues when they come on land is because their bodies are not designed to live with the gravity of just being on land and constantly being like shoved into a surface they're not used to that and so that's why when they beach themselves they tend to not do well because they're not really their bodies are not really designed to live on land but our bodies are designed to live on land i know i'm going into like a whole thing i barely even talked about the deep sea at all yet we're i could literally talk about the ocean I'm so sad because like does it hurt a seal like during like other than them being in shows but like when they have to like catch a ball and like go up on a little like oh no I think um so for for creatures that are designed to be in and out of the water that is they're they are a bit more I don't know if accepting is the right word but they're they are able to like accommodate that a little bit better whereas fully a fully marine mammal is going to have a hard time being on land but like seals seals and sea lions were basically like that's part of their design is that they live partially on land and partially in the water so they can they can handle that that's a little the part of the reason why they're a little they tend to be smaller than whales uh dolphins and they're you know generally tend to be pretty squishy um but they're they are quite a bit smaller um so us on land we have less access to calcium this somehow became calcium day um and so we actually developed a strategy where we have these like stiff bones that help us fight gravity and also help store calcium so us having bones and requiring a bunch of calcium is 100 percent because we live on land so yeah. um uh, anyway so when you're talking about the deep the deep deep it's less of a less of a problem because you are uh in suspended in water the problem is that you actually are exposed to way higher pressures than we are so they're actually like more hand, more uh uh like um uh hindered by this and so they uh, have a bunch of different strategies to combat this so one thing you'll notice if you look at deep sea creatures um, is not only that they have huge eyes and that's partially because of how little light there is down there. So big eyes are an adaptation to help you try to maximize as much light as possible. Um, but in this case, there's not really a lot of light, um, uh, coming in. So they tend to have these large eyes and large feelers is kind of what I've started calling them. So like long whiskers on fish and like, you know, you're thinking of your angler fish with their long, uh, extended little structures that have lights on the end to attract prey. Those tend to be much more common in creatures in the deep sea. Um, and there's another interesting thing, which is that a lot of them are hermaphroditic, uh, meaning that they they have uh, both male and female genitalia. And so be, that's partially because of how hard it is to find mates in the deep sea, um, because there is low food, low oxygen, everything's moving slow. There's not a lot of creatures you're gonna run into on your daily basis, um, which for an introvert might sound like a dream. And then, um, but the problem is if you're trying to mate, it's hard to find 
another member of your own species, let alone a member of the opposite uh, biological sex. And so they have developed this strategy of hermaphroditity for that reason. Um, and it's another reason why uh, creatures like anglerfish, if you've ever heard about anglerfish using their male counterparts as uh, little, uh, I don't know, I don't know what to call them to be kind about it, but almost like they they like literally attach to the side of a female anglerfish and become just a set of testicles is basically what happens. Um, that that's part of the strategy is that males are small and their their tendency to run into females is pretty low. So if they find one, they're like, I am uh, I am your male forever now, and they like become a part of the female. Oh yeah, they're like latched onto you for life, permanently latched. They actually be basically become just a part of the female. It's crazy. I should do a whole thing on on anglerfish, but. Everything is different in the deep sea because of all of these issues. Everything's slower, everything's colder, things like you're not gonna run into as many species as before. So finding food is harder because that finding mates is harder, everything is harder. And the other super weird thing that happens in the deep sea is something called deep sea gigantism, which I think is really fascinating. So like a lot of the creatures we think of from the deep sea are things like huge squid, right? Like big giant ocean squid. And those are found so deep that like there were sailors that talked about this for generations and no one believed that they were real until we eventually found some that happened to, from one reason or another, come to the surface uh, and die because they can't survive at the pressures we live at. Much like we can't survive the pressures they live at, everyone's adapted to their own environment. So uh, there's a weird phenomenon that happens in the deep, in the deep, deep. Um, that is referred to as gigantism that uh, big like squid are bigger than you would expect even than we see in areas where there's more food and light and less pressure and less harsh conditions we still see bigger versions of them in the deep um, and they don't really know exactly why that happens but um, not it's not just squid it's also isopods so those are the big giant they look like pill bugs like that you find in your house but like the huge dog-sized version of a pill bug um, and those are the ones that they definitely found during um, Deepwater Horizon. Those are some of the, the creatures that were pulled up and everyone thought they were aliens. They were actually just giant isopods or giant pill bugs at the bottom of the ocean. And they get big, I mean big, like we're talking the size of a dog, like that size. Um, and then they're squid, obviously, there are also these huge tube worms, which are found at hydrothermal vents. Um, they're mass, they're massive. They look like big tubes of lipstick, like they're very, very classic looking, but they're, they're huge. They can be meters long. And so there's this bizarre phenomenon where there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of life as we would classify it, but the life that's there tends to get really big. It's very strange. Um, and they really don't know why, but they're well, also, isn't it specifically so they can find food and resources? Could be sure. Yeah. Could I mean, it's big enough that you're able to outcompete the others for resources. Like the amount of resources you put into growing big is going to be given right back to you right. plus more. Yeah. So, so there's, there's probably, there's probably something there. Of course, it's like growing big requires a lot of resources itself. So you have to be either alive long enough to get that big, or you have to have the adequate so resources. Like this buy-in is much like the stock market. It's like who has the most to put up front is maybe going to get the most in return. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that that is how it works um and it is a little bit of a risk reward situation yeah, yeah. for sure um so that that is definitely true there's also a lot of bioluminescence down in the deep deep so there's not a lot of natural light so creatures <laughs> bioluminescence what is bioluminescence it's just it's a fish that it's all fishes that go to raves i don't know uh it's fish. <laughs> period 
fishes just fishes uh and yes fishes is the correct term if you're talking about more than one species of fish it's called fishes anyway um but by bioluminescence <laughs> is another really common thing it's used for both attracting prey and mates uh actually providing a source of light so the fish can see though i feel like that's a probably pretty narrow range do, of do most are most fish in the deep sea seeing though this is a good, so this is a good question. So a lot of them have large eyes, which doesn't necessarily mean that their sight is better. Uh, sometimes it just means that they, they actually produce more um, rods. And so they're able to see, they're able to, to perceive more light, but no color is kind of the idea. So light itself is the thing that's perceived um, better than we can, whereas color doesn't really make sense. There's not enough light to really have color anyway. Yeah. Um, and so one thing you'll notice too about a lot of deep sea organisms is the bioluminescent colors that they produce to our eyes are, are beautiful and crazy, but a lot of them tend to be in the red light spectrum. And that's hundred percent just because of the amount of energy required to produce that light. So are there specific cells in their body that can turn on like a light. Oh yeah. Uh, so bio, I should do a whole thing on bioluminescence actually. I should do a whole thing because I feel like I'm going to take so long if I keep talking about bioluminescence. So let's, I'm going to do a whole day on bioluminescence. That's only if I give you that as a topic. Fair. Um, Fair. I just thought bioluminescence was the bacteria that gets into them. Yeah. Yeah. So there, a lot of it is from bacteria. So that's why I was like, should I talk about this a different day? Well, you just said it's bacteria, not like the actual cell, like turning on and off like a light switch. Oh yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of ways that, that organisms can produce bioluminescence. One of the ways that we tend to think about are these uh, bacteria that, that that these fish actually keep they they it's kind of like a like a farmer they're actually cultivating their little crop of bioluminescent bacteria so uh, a lot of organisms will do that to produce light um, but as far as far as I know I don't know about in the deep sea actually so partially I want to do some more research because I don't know uh, I don't know how many of them actually harbor these commensal bacteria that are producing light kind of like we see in squid that are in the zone that we can actually observe I'm not sure if it's the same situation in the deep in the deep deep I'm not sure I feel like most am anim animals animals. Most <laughs> animals once you get to the deep sea are albino and usually also blind so I feel like even having those multiple rods, like the further you get away from the sun, the, the less pigmentation you have and the less light. And so I feel like most animals that I've read down in the deep sea are also blind. Yeah. So that is also, that is also really common or at least, at least blind from like the sense that we think of sight as being a major sense a perce perceptive organ, but like down in the deep sea, it's not, uh, we're, they're not relying as much on eyes. They're relying a lot more on um on sensory and uh, right smell right like the motion of the actual water so you can tell if there's prey moving just because you can tell oh the water moved in this area let me go check that out or yeah like like chemotaxis is literally like moving towards smells so you they can actually like like you think of sharks like they can smell uh different compounds and they can actually follow them and there's honestly, to be to be like perfectly honest, there's so much we don't understand about this part of the ocean that it's like hard for me to even tell you a lot of information because a lot of this is truly just me being like, okay, so on, in the BBC's Blue Planet, here's what they saw because that really there's so few studies of these creatures that we've done because of how like hard it is to actually get to them. It's hard to get to them. And then even if you do get to them, if you bring them to the surface, they basically explode because they they're so used to these high pressures their bodies are not built for the pressure at sea level and so what happens is 
they literally will explode like their eyes pop out like that's a very that is actually a thing that does happen they can put, so them, they can put them in the high pressure chambers to yeah them. so the only way that they can really bring them up now is to put them in high pressure chambers when they capture them but still you have to find i mean for the most part you have to be there has to be a person down in a submersible you can't just have an automatic one as far as i know uh i don't even i'm not really sure how they get any of these samples but what i will say is that the deepest fish that was ever caught is a kind of snail fish and it is both transparent and blind um so you're correct it's it's one of those fish that you can literally see everything happening inside like you can see its liver because it's so clear it's uh it's really cool and they're they said they're the, about twice as long as the cigar. So I guess that's a size measurement we're still using to measure fish. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's some bizarre creatures. So like a few of the ones that I wanted to mention are just the, so the snailfish being the biggest fish that was ever caught and brought back to the surface. Uh, there are obviously bigger fish down deep that have been observed that haven't been able to be captured. There's uh, the Dumbo octopus is a really popular one. Very cute, iconic looking little like circ, very very uh like an umbrella classic octopus shape uh the hairy angler fish again we talked about angler fish before the tripod fish which is cool as heck i've never heard of this before but it's a fish that has these specific fins that are specialized to act as literally like a stand for them to be on the seafloor and what they do is rather than like sitting on the floor like uh, for instance like a bat fish or a pancake fish might where they have their little fins that are adapted to moving more like feet the tripod fish actually has fins that they can like push a bunch of water pressure into. And for that, and like by doing that, they can actually make them super stiff. So they actually like sit on the, the seafloor like a tripod. So anything you've ever thought of in nature uh, or anything you've ever thought of like a really cool innovation that we've like come up with, 100% nature stoned already. So there's already a tripod fish. There are also, there are sharks down that deep. Uh, the Greenland shark is one that can get pretty deep. The six gill shark is one that goes, uh, is as far, as far as I know, is the, the shark that they've captured or that they've spotted at the deepest points. But I don't know if that's actually, I don't know if that's true. This is my understanding from the BBC um, and their documentary came out a while ago. So that very well could be outdated. But six gill sharks are about eight meters in length. So they're huge. Um, they're huge and they are, they do tend to have those big, those big kind of eyes that that don't really uh if you've seen a greenland shark they they are the ones that are that live for a very long time so that's another weird thing people or people <laughs> creatures in the deep in the deep deep live for a really long time uh so we can get these greenland sharks uh specifically female greenland sharks that are like 300 years old so sharks that are older than the united states of america like that kind of level um so they're yeah. really really cool do they I mean, part of it's probably because they don't have any UV damage down there because they're outside of the UV spectrum. For sure. Also, do you think they have longer telomeres from the start so that they can live longer? So that is a really good question. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that anyone's even gotten enough specimens. Well, not even that. I just don't even know if anyone's gotten enough specimens to like study the telomeres of deep sea organisms. I'm sure that that is like a far down the line. Because thing. even if you're outside of the UV spectrum you're not really under predation. You can only live as long as you can replicate your DNA. Once you can't replicate your DNA, DNA anymore, you're screwed. Yeah. And I, what I do know too about, about um, how at least- oh, I can also, just for like anyone who doesn't know, the telomeres are just like extra junk at the end of all of your chromosomes. Um, so that as you go through like, cell, uh, like mitosis, 
you'll lose a little bit each time just due to error. Um, but as soon as you lose all of that like extra area at the end, you're going to start losing actual DNA that you're going to need for things. So those are kind of just like a safety zone. And as you age, even us, like currently as we're aging, mm-hmm. um, every time we have a cell division, we're losing a little bit of our telomeres. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I don't, I don't know how fish, how those work in fish. I don't know. Sharks are like a whole nother kettle of fish to be weird about it, but like they are, they are very different than regular uh, teleosts, which are, which are fish, uh, bony fish. So any kind of fish that you're normally thinking of as a fish, uh, where sharks don't have those same kind of solid bones that fish do. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I imagine sharks, sharks, um are a very they're very old obviously they've been around for a very long time like dinosaur age so yeah. i don't i don't and they've they've they have um surprise they have like very interesting and divergent physiology so i'm really curious about yeah. if it, what their telomeres so, are like or if anyone's even looked into it i don't human, know human telomeres are between they're relatively short with between three and to 15 kb uh what? And mice have telomeres, which are usually around 50 KB. According to this one article I just pulled up, which is called telomeres in fish. Fish usually have telomeres that are about 25 KB. So they're already starting with telomeres that are longer than humans, which is probably why they can live about three times as long. Yeah, which makes which makes some sense. I think fish, I think teleos also underwent like a genome duplication event. So that could be- some- And they're not depressed. Like they're not suffering from depression. Right, that too. <laughs> I mean, they might have seasonal affectiveness disorder down in the deep sea if they have no dopamine. Oh, wait. Oh, man. Dopamine. There's no dopamine down there. No dopamine in the deep, deep. Yeah, no. Uh, it's fascinating, but like, honestly, the amount that we know about it is so little. There is a, there is a famous quote. Um, I can't even remember who it's by right now. It might, I'm going to say James Cameron, and I'm sure it's wrong, uh, but he is one of the only people that's been down to the, the bottom of the Marianas Trench, uh, the deepest part of the ocean, um, proof that in America, money will buy You've you. You've had water. like six weeks to look this up. Oh, Who I know. went down with James Cameron? Still don't know. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I, there, I don't know if it's even him that said the quote, I guess is my point. It probably wasn't him, but basically the, the, the quote said that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the depths of the ocean. And that is very true. Cause like there are creatures that we don't, we've never studied or seen before. There literally are dinosaur fish that they found that they thought were extinct for like millennia that they found. And they were just because they were deep sea fish, like chimeras or the big fish species that we talk about as being like a resurrected fossil because people literally thought they were extinct and then somebody caught one off the coast of I think Japan like someone just caught one one day and they are real and they're in the deep sea and we just didn't know because that's not where we were looking so it's crazy Uh, it was uh Paul Snellgrove who's an oceanographer that made that quote okay thank you Thank you, Paul. It says, we know more about the surface of the moon and about Mars than we do about the deep sea floor, despite the fact that we have yet to extract a gram of food, a breath of oxygen, or a drop of water from those bodies. Oh, gosh, it's even better than I than I thought. Beautiful. That's what I'm here oh. for. Thank you, Small Grove, or whatever the name was. Snell Grove. Sorry. Snellgrove. Famous oceanographers that I should know the name of and uh, but yeah, the deep sea is fascinating. I 
highly encourage scary though it's spooky i don't know what it is there's some like there's some inverse relationship between depth of the ocean and beautifulness of a fish (laughs) okay i don't agree with that statement but i do i think that i think that the the tube worms at hydrothermal vents are beautiful no. I love those crabs that are down there too. Look up, okay, everybody else besides Allie, look up hydrothermal vent creatures and see if you agree with them because I don't think that they're right in this sort of gym. <laughs> I think that they are, okay, you're just showing me blobfish. That doesn't count. This isn't a blobfish. No, that's not. That's not a blobfish. I don't know what that is. Uh, angler oh, blobfish. It has human teeth, basically. <laughs> Oh no, Mola Mola, that's not deep sea. Um, okay, I just Googled ugly fish of the deep sea, so. All right, all right. Well, if you're gonna Google ugly fish of the deep sea, you'll find ugly fish of the deep sea. Find two worms. I don't think two worms, I think two worms are gross. They're beautiful, look at them. They literally look like, like little tubes of lipstick. They're beautiful. Plus they're incredible. They don't even have their own stomachs. Bacteria do all the work for them. They're incredible. Yeah, they're lazy. I mean, sure, but they're so beautiful. Doesn't that make sense also? <laughs> they're I mean, beautiful and they're lazy. That's how I guess we will agree to disagree on whether or not two worms are beautiful. Well, hopefully whomever sent me this topic uh, will be pleased that I think they're beautiful. <laughs> Gabe? Yes, Gabe. I hope you think that deep sea creatures are beautiful. They're beautiful. I think he does. I'm sure he does. Anyway, I don't know how much of that was actually usable because I feel like I just talked for a hundred hours. I think it was great. Okay, wonderful. I heard a lot about floppy ears and about ugly deep sea creatures. Um, you learned a lot about beautiful deep sea creatures. <laughs> that is correct. That is correct. Um, yeah, so that is our seventh drunk science episode. Yeah. And now we will be moving directly into filming, <laughs> to recording another one. Yes, uh, got to keep this this, so, function, this function brewing drunk going. Got to do it. So we just want to say thank you for listening and taking part in this uh, drunk science episode. Um, thank you as that- always for listening to us drunkenly talk about science. <laughs> um, if you want to send us a clip for and how to not, we actually have a function in our anchor.fm portion of our podcast where you can send in your own voice clip and we can just include your own voice in our podcast if you would like to do that just please do an introduction to yourself in the beginning um and then at the end you can say whether or not you want your name to be published in the podcast if that's something you want to do mm-hmm. um, that's something new name and pronouns if, if you want us to announce them otherwise uh we can keep it anonymous uh, either way name and pronouns are helpful so that when we do refer to you we re- refer to you in the correct um orientation Also, if you want to support our podcast, there's also a link for listener support in the anchor.fm portion of our podcast. So you just go to anchor.fm and type in, is this science? And you can go right there. Yeah. Now we're going to go and record another episode. So thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We'll be back for your regularly scheduled episode. Oh, our next episode, we will be uh, interviewing Irene Newton from Indiana University on her uh, past, present, and future in science. Yes, I'm so excited. She's my science hero of, of many. I have many science heroes, and she is definitely at the top of that list. So. Oh, yeah. She is a role model extraordinaire. Incredible. Yes. Yeah, so look, we'll look see that with Irene next in two weeks. Yeah, see you next next week. Two weeks. <laughs> next two weeks.
<laughs> Bye. Bye. Also, if you would like to reach us, feel free to email us at our Gmail at protonationnation at gmail.com. That's P-R-O-T-O-N-A-T-I-O-N-N-A-T-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at is underscore this underscore science on Twitter and is this science on Instagram. Please feel free to reach out to us if you want to be part of the podcast or if you have any topics or especially how-to knots that you would like included in the show.